0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from. In a plethora of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial. Go get a free audiobook by today's guest, Heidi Julewitz. Check out The Mineral Palace or The Uses of Enchantment, or go get her brand new novel. The Vanishers. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. That is enjoyable. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two writers talking in a relatively spontaneous manner. This is quality audio programming. My guest today is Heidi Julevitz. She's the author of a brand new novel called The Vanishers. The Vanishers. It is available in hardcover from Doubleday. She is also the co editor of The Believer magazine. And she's one half of the literary power couple that is Ben Marcus and Heidi Julevitz. So she's a terrific writer and a wonderful guest, and I'm excited to have her on the program. Uh, I have a quick plug here. Tomorrow, Thursday, April 19th, right here in Los Angeles, the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience is happening. I will be reading aloud in front of people, as will Ben Laurie, Claire Bidwell-Smith, Gina Frangello, and uh, Rich Ferguson and Boss, and uh, Milo Martin will be the host Plus, there will be music from John Elliott in the Hereafter. It's going to be a fun night. It's all happening over at Molly Malone's Irish Pub uh, at 575 South Fairfax Avenue. Please come out uh, if you can. We'd love to see you there. Otherwise, before we get started, I want to talk briefly about a psychic experience that I had earlier this week. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that something supernatural has happened, something metaphysical and weird. Uh, And one of the reasons that it comes to mind and feels a little bit relevant uh, is that uh, Heidi... Uh, Today's guest mentioned last week in a print interview online that she often has this strange experience where streetlights will go out in her presence. And uh, this happens to me as well. So when I read this interview uh, with Heidi and she said this, I got excited about it because uh, it made me feel less alone. And, uh, you know, it's always nice to know when you're not the only one. And it's one of those things that has always made me uh, feel a little bit uh, strange and concerned. Uh, Because I can't tell you how many times I've been walking down the street, usually by myself, uh, or maybe like walking my dog or something. And the next thing you know, a street lamp overhead will suddenly uh, and spontaneously go out. And it happens uh, with uh, unusual regularity. And after a while, you start to wonder why. And you wonder if it's some sort of sign. And you wonder if there's something wrong with you that your very presence causes the cessation of light and the death of incandescence. Uh, And I should also say that I'm skeptical when it comes to this stuff, uh, when it comes to psychic experiences. And I don't want to overstate the case either uh, when it comes to what I've done because these sorts of things uh, that I'm about to talk about uh, don't happen to me with extreme frequency. It's, it's, you know, every once in a while I have an uncanny kind of experience that defies explanation and uh, sort of gives me the chills. And so to give you one example from a couple of years back, this was May 1st, 2009. May 1st, 2009 I was sitting here at this desk uh, Working or trying to work uh, I was staring at a flashing cursor I was slack jawed I was drinking caffeine And I remember suddenly saying to myself Internally, I smell an earthquake I smell an earthquake And the thought occurred to me So uh, spontaneously and so strongly That I actually tweeted it And you can check this on my Twitter feed At Brad Uh You can even Google it Uh, I tweeted, I smell an earthquake at 2.06 p.m. on May 1st, 2009. It's verifiable. It's on the Twitter. And why did I do this? You know, why did this particular sentence pop into my head? And why was it so insistent uh, in my brain? I have no idea. You know, and did I smell something? No. Uh, Or maybe I did, but, you know, there was no detectable odor or anything like that. And I had not been reading about earthquakes. I had not been thinking about earthquakes. And suddenly I thought to myself, I smell one. I smell an earthquake. And sure enough, that very same day, just a few hours later at around six o'clock Pacific time, there was an actual earthquake right here in Los Angeles, uh, about 4.4 on the Richter scale. It was in the news and uh, it shook me up. It made me tremble. And uh, the puns are just too easy. And I remember thinking to myself upon feeling uh, this earthquake and reading about it online, you know, this is obviously very odd. I've done something here. This is either a highly, highly unusual coincidence or else, uh, you know, I've, I've had like some sort of genuine premonition. I've had a psychic experience. I've had a vision and I don't know where it came from. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, there's no tradition of this kind of thing in my family. We we have no psychics in my lineage we're not a particularly mystical clan though uh my ancestors uh they are and were heavily catholic uh so i'm sort of an anomaly there but perhaps that means something so anyway uh then you fast forward to this past week uh or last week it was tuesday i believe and i was battling insomnia as i will sometimes do and i woke up at 3 a.m for no good reason and i'm just suddenly wide awake and i'm lying there in bed and i'm frustrated Uh, until about 4 a.m. And then I just get up and I'm trying to make it a normal day, as normal as it could possibly be. But I'm already feeling a little bit like a zombie and I know it's just going to be a long one. And so I go into my office and I'm trying to get to work and, uh, you know, a few hours go by and I'm sitting there. It's the same exact scenario. Like I'm trying to work and I'm sort of spacing out and the caffeine, uh, the first dose is starting to wear off and all of a sudden... Uh, I think of a friend of mine And and she shall remain nameless Per her request But this friend of mine Pops into my head We haven't spoken in a while It's been like too long Actually Uh, But suddenly there she is She appears in my mind Out of nowhere And I say to myself She's pregnant And it occurs to me uh, So plainly And so strongly That I actually sent her A text message Just seconds later And I said uh, and, And here it is verbatim How are you doing? Just had a premonition that you're knocked up. And so uh, 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, the phone rings. It's her. And uh, I say hello. And she says hello. And she sounds a little spooked. And she says, what the fuck? And I'm like, what? And she's like, my doctor just called me 10 minutes ago to confirm that I'm pregnant. Like she had just found out officially from her OBGYN. So that was another one and that was strange, you know, and I can't explain it and I don't know how to feel about it, uh, other than to be a little bit amazed and uh, perplexed as to how this stuff happens and why. And, uh, and I'm also a little frustrated, uh, by my inability to control it or, or to, you know, call it up whenever I want to, like, I, I don't get to choose when this kind of thing happens, or at least I don't think I do. And if I somehow have that option Uh, I haven't figured out how to exercise it yet because it would be really cool, uh, you know, to be able to like turn off street lamps whenever I want just by thinking about it or, uh, to smell earthquakes like hours ahead of time or to have uncanny insight, uh, into the reproductive health of friends and passersby. But unfortunately this is not the case. Uh, my powers to my great frustration are difficult to harness. They are uh, elusive and so far they appear to be limited
0: So uh, welcome to the home studio.
2: Thank you. I like Uh, the home studio. I like the dog that's in your home studio. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, Walter actually cannot be in the home studio because he is a heavy breather. Yeah, I'm a
2: heavy breather.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, just make sure you're close to the microphone. Okay. Okay. Um, So you like Los Angeles. You're enjoying yourself.
2: Oh, yeah. I want to live here. I I mean, I think isn't that natural for what we were talking. You're from Milwaukee. I'm from Maine. I still remember the first time I drove here the first time i ever came here it was via car right because you want to do it the old fashioned way like the
1: that's how i did it too did you yeah yeah yeah. i drove in you know the first time i ever came to california would have been 1994
2: yeah wow yeah okay so i beat you by a couple years but um, i came i think it was it was when i was still in college and my friends and i were like we let's move to california for the summer and we borrowed a car and we drove it across country. It seemed like you had to really work for it to get here, right? You couldn't just get on a plane.
1: Right, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You
2: needed to feel the journey
1: I, I still beneath I mean,
2: your balding tires. I
1: have not, no, I have not done a massive road trip. And part of it is just a function of age. You just don't have the time. I but I used to love to do that. I know, It's I a know. great thing to do.
2: I know. I mean, that we're, it, it wasn't really such a successful road trip because we really did. Um, the tires kept blowing out. Basically, one kind of after another, it? it was a sob. It was like a really nice sob that I borrowed from my boyfriend that he, for some reason, gave to me for the summer. Right? Um, and uh, and finally, I think we were in Nebraska or Boulder, one of those two places. And very similar. Very similar. <laughs> you know? <laughs> how can you? If it's how not me it's not L.A., it's just like blah, 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 right, right. right. Um, and. And finally, after we'd replaced each one of the tires at this point, all four tires, and finally, the uh, whichever mechanic we were in whichever city, um, he said, oh, well, your axle's broken. One of the axles of the car was broken. And so this meant the wear on all the tires was okay. uneven. Right. So then we had to get the axle welded back together. In fact, now I remember this was Boulder because we have a picture of us. With the car up high and yeah, yeah. our our bearded, hairy, wife beater wearing <laughs> mechanic,
1: right. I, I went next to, Boulder. to us. I went to see. Oh, you Boulder. did! Yeah, so you I, know this mechanic. Course, I might have gone to this. Yeah, mechanic. you probably did. Yeah.
2: Wow, Boulder. Um, so yeah, I've only been there that one time, and I just remember thinking. Everybody's high. (laughs) Isn't everybody high? And exercising. They're high and and they're exercising at the same time.
1: No, I mean, I'm not even, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I felt
2: that, I found that to be a really impressive
1: combination. It is.
2: Of ambitions. It is. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, it's also, um, I don't know. It was, I have fond memories of it. I, sometimes I look back on it and wonder how I did it. Yeah. But I mean, I was 19. It's a good place to be 19 years old. Yeah. I
2: would imagine so.
1: I had a good time. Um, so, you got out to California. This was like what okay, so was, it, was this in the this. middle of college? So this you... is the middle
2: of college, so I think it was probably eighty eight eighty nine something like that okay, yeah, and, and went... we landed here, and in fact, I guess this is just going to be a show about my old boyfriends so <laughs> um, so the person we stayed with it was right around here somewhere in fact, when we turned onto your street, I was like isn 't this where he lived? Um, anyways, my high school boyfriend, who was not my boyfriend any longer, had moved here. And so we came out and stayed with him for a while. And our original—he's
0: actually
1: here.
2: He's he's, he's (laughs) also—he's in the the closet. I know, I know. Um, And uh, so our ultimate goal was San Francisco. Um, And we stopped here. We actually lost a couple people here. We were all there was supposed to be like five of us, and by the time we left LA, there
1: were only three of us. Really? Yeah. What did they do? They decided they wanted to stay. They
2: decided they wanted to stay. They hooked up. They Uh found some. Yeah. Just like
1: that. that's what happens in college.
2: Yeah, it's true.
1: In a strange but, city. And your plans just changed. And your plans. <laughs> you know? Now, did they hook up with complete strangers? They met while they were here and then they stayed well, with them? Well,
2: no, they were people who were living in this big group house where the ex-boyfriend was.
1: Okay. You know? So they had... So it wasn't, they'd been it wasn't sketchy. It wasn't they'd sketchy. Been, they
2: were still pretty sketchy, but...
1: You know, <laughs> they were vetted sketchy. Vetted and sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> Um wow that's interesting. Yeah,
2: but then I went to San Francisco. I I didn't lose my sense of self in LA like some of my friends did. Right. And uh and we were living in fact, I was made to remember this yesterday cuz I was just a few blocks away. We lived in a frat house. The fraternity would rent out rooms. I
1: did that for a did summer. Did you do that? Not in San Francisco, but yeah, Yeah. summer after my freshman year. Yeah. I thought it was But like, we were girls. It was disgusting. It was
2: so disgusting. Like I think mine so was probably so disgusting. Mine might have
1: been. I can't imagine anyone living in more disgusting conditions than I did. Yeah. And the fact that I did it happily, that's yeah. what we were talking about. I mean, the no, same I thing, know. 19 years old. I know. Troubles I know.
2: me. I know. Well, this fraternity actually was pitched to us on the phone because, you know, we had to call and inquire, right? And uh, they were like, well, you know, this is this is the fraternity that, that's in the final scene of um, – uh, why can't I remember the Dustin Hoffman movie, the very famous Dustin Hoffman movie where he sleeps with the mother, the graduate.
0: Okay. Yeah. It yeah. was
2: the fraternity that's in the graduate. Yeah. So I guess that justified them charging us more. Right?
1: Yeah, I guess so. It was I a destination they, spot. They do that in LA though. They, they rent, they raise the rent when it's like, you know, like Marilyn Monroe's yeah. first apartment. Or yeah, something. exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. So we, we had to endure a, a rent hike.
1: Yeah. But it was still for, I mean, more affordable.
2: Yeah, No, but I mean, there was like six of us sleeping in
1: one room. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. And you did it for a whole summer?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um and so how long and then then after that you went back to college? I went
2: back to the Northeast. You went to Dartmouth.
1: I went to Dartmouth. Okay, so yeah. I just read an article in which Rolling is why Stone. I
2: obviously went and lived in a frat house quite happily. <laughs> I was
1: going to say because right? They, did you read this article? No, uh, is
2: this the one about the hazing and stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's, it's by uh, cool. Janet Reitman who was on this show. Oh she, no way! She wrote the big expose on Scientology. Oh
2: wow! So yeah, and it's, actually, I think yeah. Yeah. Diane was here. Yeah. You were
1: here when I talked to Janet.
2: Wow! So about I'll, this exact expose, or no, the Scientology about the Scientology one. book. Okay, gotcha.
1: So I and mean, then I just read her piece in uh, Rolling Stone. So,
2: Tell me about it. Is this the one where they describe the lovely bucket and the... I mean, just... The, it, yeah, no, it's beyond... It's
1: beyond belief. Yeah. Can yeah. you corroborate this? I with? can
2: corroborate. I can. I mean, yeah, I uh, I recently... I, I feel like when you've been to Dartmouth, um, well, first of all, you hide the fact. It's, it's something that you don't want people to know Why? about yourself. I think... I had a very funny interaction with uh, Victoria Riddell, who's a writer in New York, and we um, we ha- I sort of said, "Oh well, um, have you ever lived in New England?" Because she said, "Oh, you're from Maine." I said, "Have you ever um, been there?" She said, "No, but I spent some time in New Hampshire." And I was like, "Oh, where?" She said, "Oh, you know, just kind of kind of on the border of Vermont." And I was like, "Oh, well, so why were you there?" She's like, "Oh." You know, it was just for college. And I, and I just looked at her and I said, did you go to Dartmouth? And she looked at me and, and I said, because I went there too. And she said, you did. Did you hug? We, we, yeah, we hugged. And then we went under the table and spoke in tongues. You know, we had to we, we got out our special code. And but, we, but I don't um, get it.
1: I don't get it. Why you know, would it be? I, think, I mean, it's an Ivy League school. All right, so
2: as a woman, maybe it, it suddenly makes you seem really suspect. Like you have no. Um, yeah. That, that Why would a woman go there? Especially back then. Right. I don't think it has that reputation now. But it was you know seen as being misogynistic and conservative and racist and all those things that you know to be honest it 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 wasn 't it it uh, there was that publication called the Dartmouth Review that got all of the attention and and subsequently its reputation became the reputation of the entire college, which wasn 't entirely correct now, what did sort of create um a post traumatic stress situation for people who went there. Yeah, was the fraternity scene and the drinking. And I was recently at Columbia where I profess. And um, a student, again, he, like, came out to me. He's like, so I went to Dartmouth, too. (laughs) And we started talking about things that to us were perfectly normal. And the people who were listening to us, just their jaws hit the floor. You know, for example, there's in every basement, um, at least when we were there, and I presume this is still happening because he's, you know, whatever, 20-something. Um, you go down to the basement, and there is a thing called the trough. And the trough is what it sounds like. And it it's essentially, um, it rings the basement floor. It's against the wall. And this is so that you can urinate and vomit in it um, without having to leave the party, basically.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: and then that just sits there and it's just like this fermentation so you you would hit that i mean literally it was when you walked into into the staircase to go down into one of these basements it was just a wall of fermenting beer and all that other stuff and you pushed through that's that's the distressing thing yeah you pushed on through and you acclimated and then you stayed there until five in the morning, you know,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know. And then called it fun the next day. And then you called it fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I did similar things. I'm like, I look back on my, uh, college experience and the, it is, you know, the idiocy of youth. And I know you're supposed to have, or I think you're supposed to have kind of a measured, uh, feeling about it you can't be too hard on yourself you were young yeah but like i also sometimes i mean to this day i can look back on certain episodes and i'll just blush and feel
2: yeah no, uh,
1: like question my own yeah worth yeah. as a human being <laughs> it's
2: true it's true anyways it's pretty shocking i guess to hear that that stuff's still going on i don't know why i thought things had changed but i guess not weirdly i guess it also makes me feel um i don't know youthful, <laughs>
1: yeah, right. still connected the, to it. I
2: feel so connected. <laughs> the tradition
1: lives on. Brings me
2: right back to that younger <laughs> self.
1: Now, uh, let me ask you this about going to Dartmouth, because it is an Ivy League school. Does that provide you with do you think it provides you with any kind of like basic confidence just the fact that a you were able to get in b that you graduated see that that's on your resume and that you can tell people i graduated from dartmouth because yeah. automatically it confers a certain intellectual legitimacy on you
2: well as i've already said um i hide the fact that i went there i really do um and and i mean i don't hide it i'm talking about it right now on right. your podcast right. so i mean right. this is my coming out um to the world no i uh I, I really don't ever mention it to anybody. Um, and I don't know if that's because I worry about what they'll think about me as a feminist minded individual um, or if I just find super annoying people who talk about where they go to college, no matter where they went. Um, but I will. Call out the Harvard people because they're the ones who really do talk about where they went.
1: They like I, this, I would I would talk about it probably. Would you? I don't know. I don't know. I <laughs> see. I have the N.C. I went to like Colorado and like when I I talked about this before on the show. Um, I didn't want to go to college when I was graduating high school. I was mm. burned out. Yeah, dumb. and I had and I had great grades and I probably could have gotten into somewhere. Yeah, I didn't apply. I You're applied. To, I applied to two schools. You're kidding? No. no. I was just like done. I That's was like so interesting. You know, That's so how
2: I felt after I finished his last novel. I was like done. Time to, you retired. I'm going to Boulder.
0: <laughs> Maybe you I'm should. Going to Boulder. I'm just drum going circle. To, yeah, just jump smoke circle, some weed and rock go climb. Go for a
1: run.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but no, I actually. I mean, I will say I I came from Maine. Right, I went to a public school in Maine, Portland, and Portland, Maine.
1: Good city. Yeah, oh, I love that. It's, it's
2: a, an amazing city. I th- I've been there once, and I love. I mean, it's much more amazing now than it was when I was growing up. I mean, I found it amazing then, but I mean, now it's actually a place I would tell people they should visit, whereas before it was just a nice place to grow up. Now there's... In the summer. Yeah, there's kind of like exciting food scene going on there. And I mean, I was talking about this with somebody who lives there right now. um, And we were saying how strangely it's kind of a better city than say Boston or these other places that it's like it's so far away from New York that there's no comparing it to New York. I think there are a lot of other cities on the East coast that if they're within a kind of, you know, slingshot radius, you go there and you're like, ah, but it's not New York. Right. You know? Yeah but you go to portland and you're just like it's portland. Yeah. You you don't you don't compare it to anything else.
1: It's just its own.
2: Yeah. So anyways, I went to yeah, I went to public school in portland and yeah, and somehow I got into Dartmouth and I went there and I just thought, "Oh my god, everyone here came from Exeter and Andover and I'm going to get my ass kicked. I
1: never even heard of you those know? schools until I went to college. Really? No, I was a sheltered kid. Yeah. From, I was in Indiana. You Yeah. And I just... I,
2: well, it's good. You didn't know what to fear. I, I
1: feared. An, I was an innocent. I feared them. <laughs> I was like, chote. What is that? Yeah.
2: Sounds like, slightly sounds, perverted. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you also found a lot of that in the basement trough. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of choat going on down there. Yes, there was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I was totally freaked out when I went there. I thought that I was going to be ill-prepared, and I turned out to be fine you know you were fine. I had a good public school I, I I studied Mandarin Chinese in my public
1: high school back then yeah seems prescient yeah yeah I mean you, are I you was, fluent no
2: God oh, okay but my name my name was ju Hai Lian, which means I think um, I think it might mean like beautiful water lotus or something <laughs> and actually I, last night I was in San Francisco and I saw a way un lie who um, was also in my class, my, my Chinese class. Um, and uh, he's now, I think, uh, he does some sort of therapy having to do with sexual addiction and stuff, and... Appropriately, his name meant Benevolent Leather. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they gave you names? Like the, the, yeah, our, were our Chinese
2: teacher gave us names. And maybe this is where my Dartmouth insecurity comes from. So he w- he went to Harvard. Hello. Yeah. Um, but he actually had um, de-Caucasianized himself. Um, he had moved to China. He had married a Chinese woman. He... Dressed in Chinese clothing and wore Chinese slippers and sat on his desk, cross-legged and drank tea during our entire class. And when he found out that I was going to Dartmouth, he just was so horrified. And I think he, he treated me, beautiful water lotus, with far less respect.
1: With, with not not benevolent, leather. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that was like was unbenevolent. Is that a word?
2: Unbenevolent.
1: Yeah, that's a word. In in Chinese, it is. In Chinese, it works. Yeah. Um, okay, so what do I want to talk about next? I guess this is something that interests me, and I don't mm-hmm. want I don't want to seem. Uh, the, what's the word? sensationalistic okay okay but you're married to ben marcus yeah. which i didn't realize which is
2: sensational I,
1: yeah it's sensational. Super sensational but i mean as far as like literary fiction goes like this is a literary fiction power coupling
2: i guess has no. anyone
1: ever said that to no, you no no
2: that sounds um it, i mean it sounds, it sounds like what we eat for breakfast we have <laughs> we have power couple egg whites
1: <laughs> i mean that's a lot of literary firepower in one household
2: i guess so i don't know i mean you interviewed him recently um do you guys do you guys guys talk He's about books a, a lot big, he just we just watch really really bad tv and make each other laugh that's essentially what our relationship is comprised of now that we have children
1: right <laughs> that's all you have like energy for
2: that's really all yeah i, I just, mean we do it without clothes on right. we just sit on the couch naked <laughs> and watch reality tv sounds fantastic laugh. yeah laugh that's you know? the way it goes yeah it's a good
1: marriage um but it, no it's like a, it's just interesting to hear that because it sort of makes sense to me like you you just can't talk about books all the time. And I think that maybe from the outside looking in, people would assume that you guys are just having these like super deep literary conversations Mm. 24 seven. It can't happen. You would implode.
2: No, I mean, I will be honest that he is, um, I mean, he's a really crucial element in my book completion process. He's a how so? A, he's a tremendously insightful and smart, and kind of nuts and bolts, solution oriented reader. So I use him really toward the end when I've, um, you know, I'm I'm almost done, and I give him something, and then he can just be like, "Bing, Bing, Bing." It's almost like laundry list, right? And, um, it's, and it's
1: right, and it's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I'm also I'm I'm like the most editable writer, maybe that exists what, I don't know What meaning you
1: receptive to notes Oh
2: god yeah I mean I'll do anything you tell me to do right. just like <laughs> great fine <laughs>
1: done yeah (laughs) the doctor is now a lawyer yeah exactly no
2: no um no i mean i i actually see it as a sort of cool form of collaboration and when you've been alone in your book for so long you're i'm actually excited to have someone else tell me what to do
1: yeah well no and then i think a good note is usually self-evident yeah it's like it's like oh and then you feel grateful for it because they saved you from yourself oh absolutely and
2: even even if that note that someone gives you strikes you as not exactly what you want to do, you still kind of have to respond to it in some way, right? So if someone says, ah, this character, I feel like you can cut this character. There's too many characters. It's just too confusing. And you think, but that character to me feels really essential. Obviously, I haven't made this character essential. So you can't, your response to that kind of feedback isn't, well, uh, you don't get my book. You don't get what I'm going for. It's, or you just override your desire and cut the character which is actually the easiest thing to do, really. Um, But my response or what I try to do is, um, you know, kind of interpret that reader desire into, into a form of action that corresponds with what I want the book to be. So I'm still taking the note.
1: Right. Right. You know? Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's, uh, sometimes you have to find yourself disagreeing and deciding to go your own road, though. Correct. Yeah, that yeah. does happen.
2: Yeah, but what's cool about that is that by disagreeing, you've 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 shut down at least one option for yourself, right? You're yeah. Like, well, I don't want to do that, right? So, good. Now I only have ten thousand options instead of ten thousand and one,
1: right? Right. 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 <laughs> Um okay so then the other thing another thing um just to kind of tick off obvious mm-hmm. stuff that I'm mm-hmm. curious about Your laundry list yeah My laundry it. list yeah uh the believer
2: Yeah How
1: did you get started yeah. with that You're the editor of the believer
2: Yeah um I'll say yeah 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 so what 2002 I guess it was um yeah there was just some like cruddy vibes in the book review world that I was picking up on with my special cruddy vibe antenna, you know <laughs> right. and honed, um, honed on the campus of Dartmouth. It, exactly <laughs> exactly um and uh yeah, and I actually um I wrote to Dave Eggers, who I knew from somewhere um and I just was like, yeah this is cruddy I think this is cruddy and and he wrote back, yeah, it is and he said we should start a book review, and um I thought he meant like his we McSweeney's and I was like yeah you guys should totally do that and then he wrote back he was like so do it you know and um and at that time Vandal Evita his wife was
1: another literary power another
2: li- yeah exactly <laughs> um they uh she was, um, she was also in the process of starting a long-form interview magazine, and I knew her from graduate school. We'd known each other from way back, and then we joined forces with yet another person that we went to graduate school with, Ed uh, Park. At, at
0: Columbia? At Columbia, sorry. Yeah. Yes, at
2: Columbia. And, uh, and so suddenly we realized, wow, we put this, these three people together, and we have, we have the believer Um so yeah, so that that was sort of the impetus. It was a it was uh, you know, a little bit of um anger and then some smart friends and the support and infrastructure and you know, and really the trust that Dave kinda gave us.
1: It's beautifully done. Oh, the design elements and everything. Well that's you know, Dave it's consistently just like
2: Dave. Dave's the design maestro. You know that. He's like a Genius designer, among other things. Got it
1: all figured out.
2: I mean, he hired me, so that was super genius (laughs) move on his part. Personnel, you know, yeah. He actually really does have a – I mean, I I do feel that that's one of the gifts that he has is to – I mean, we have such a – our staff, we are so trouble-free. There's just no – drama there's no infighting there's no nothing and I mean granted maybe that's in part because we're never in the same room together but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made and there are objections that people have to certain pieces that are going in the magazine and um, everyone is just who works there or who has worked there. Ed doesn't work there anymore um, and Andrew Leland who was sort of the blood of the magazine um, for many years as the managing editor and um, we it's just such everyone's just so nice i mean everyone's really smart and they throw in their weight and no one puts anything on anyone else or shirks their duties and it's just you know and i feel like dave somehow has a has an eye for that kind of team player
1: sure well no and it's also the pieces have to fit together somehow and
2: yeah which happens somewhat accidentally sometimes i mean i Maybe there is just some good luck involved, or maybe it's that haphazard fitting together. We're all kind of on the same wavelength, but we're, you know, literally separated by a country. Some of us, you know.
1: Well, that's the thing. Like how system, like from a a systematic standpoint, how does the magazine get done? Every, you know.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Do do you (laughs) have it? (laughs) I don't have any idea.
1: It just happens.
2: (laughs) So yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. We um, uh, we have been in the process since whatever our first issue was March two thousand and three and it's now March two thousand and twelve um, We have been refining our process, so um it was a super haphazard operation for many years, and again, that worked for us, and I think all of us had more time so that when suddenly a deadline was upon us, we'd be like, Oh shit there's a deadline, and we could we could meet it right but then we all started having kids. Then we sort of started needed to we needed to start planning ahead. We needed to have a schedule. Um, we started to hire people who are essentially like keeping. We have a a woman named Carolina, who has saved us from ourselves. You know, she keeps track of everything that's been submitted. Um, she actually starts schedule. We have a schedule. I'm not joking. This happened like a year ago. We never had a schedule
0: ever, yeah, yeah,
2: you know, and it actually takes a lot of, a lot of pressure off of us. I'm amazed it didn't occur to us earlier to do this, <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> something as simple as well, that. Well, And then
2: also we have better writer relations, you know, I mean, one of the things that um, I'm most self-conscious about and that, may, you know, keeps me up at night, quite honestly, when I'm in the middle of one of my waking fugue states and the pills aren't working um i think of the writer that i haven't emailed for three months right or, or something like suddenly oh my god i never wrote that person back or oh my god i didn't respond to their piece sure um and we just didn't have a system we just didn't have a system and no one was keeping track of it and i'm not organized in that way um so now we also we don't have writers wandering around just thinking that we're mean
1: um, no, I, instead making, of just disorganized, you're making me anxious just right? thinking because I have an inbox that just like, no, I can't ter- keep up no, with it. No,
2: no, no, no. It's terrible. And you know, I actually, I, I, and, I, and I've actually come to the point where I thought, well, as long as they just think we're disorganized and not mean spirited. And now I think, no, you know what? It's time to not be disorganized yeah. either. Yeah. It's called being 43.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. You're 43.
2: I'm 43. I'm going to be right. 44 in like a week or two or soon. All right. I know, but unfortunately not this weekend because I was told we're going to go to, where am I going? Glen Ivy Springs, which is a hot springs. You've never been there? It's no. like in Corona. No, I, been I don't know, but apparently if it's your birthday, you get all sorts of free stuff, so...
1: You're going to do too that? Too
2: bad for me. <laughs> right. I was like, damn, I wish I was 44 tomorrow. <laughs> Can't be 44 soon enough.
1: <laughs> so uh, feminism. Mm. I need to talk to because, like, this is something I that...
2: studied this at Dartmouth too. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, we're just not going to be able to get away from this topic. No, apparently.
1: we have to, but we have to talk about it because it's been on my mind lately and, and not in an entirely- pleasant oh, no. way. Wow. Just here's the thing.
2: Antagonistically, okay. you're no, feeling no. toward it? No. Well, I
1: mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be- Let's tease it out. Yeah. I don't okay. want to be angry about it. No. It's just that I feel like it's constantly being discussed. <gasps> And, uh,
2: really? Yeah. And I'm, Do you? I mean, just recently, though, right?
1: Wherever I am online, I'm reading about Are you it. Kidding me? And, and reading okay. a lot of like really trenchant, uh, beautiful stuff about it. I so have to,
2: you have to tell me where to go. I mean, know. yeah. Well, tell I mean, me. I'm getting
1: essays at the Nervous Breakdown.
2: Interesting. I'm
1: um, seeing my Facebook wall. I get like a Gestalt understanding of it too, just by. So wait,
2: like, I would just like to know when you started noticing this happening.
1: In the last like. Five or six months. Wow, yeah. it's
2: true. I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't know why this is suddenly bubbled. Maybe to the it's surface. an
1: election year, and there's well, things. Well, that could be. Maybe that's what it is. People reconsider be. policy. But and- even
2: so, I mean, think about it. Um, I mean, I think not only is feminism, I, I, I personally have been noticing not necessarily a resurgence of um, feminism or um, feminist-related um, essays submitted to me yeah. but um or maybe they were submitted and I just never responded or read them but um uh but specifically some 80s feminism right which could seem I don't know is it like a retro fascination I don't know it's the stuff that I studied and I can't believe it's now like um I'm like uh, Hélène Sixou and Luce Irigaray. These are these, like, I, I have a terrible French accent. I'm sorry, but it's like, um, a creature feminine, right? Or feminine. I don't know if a creature is feminine or masculine. I never know these things at any rate. Um, you know, it was women's writing, right? And it was all very woomy, watery, this sort of like liquid experience right. when you would read these things. <laughs> right. And, um, Anyways, I think Sixu has a, I think they're publishing her in the Paris Review like next month or in the next issue or in this issue. Um, And also Jeffrey Eugenides' The Marriage Plot. I mean, it was, it's because it was set in Brown at the 80s. And so, of course, every girl with her salt at Brown in the 80s was studying feminism, right? Yeah. Um, But I, you know, he obviously started writing that a long time ago and suddenly that pops up and.
1: It's in the my ether. book popped up, yeah. and, well, and see, yet
2: these things were germinating years ago.
1: Well, and some I, of them, and I just don't have any line into it. I, I'm not well studied in, feminine, yeah. in feminist theory and literature, but I also uh, am totally pro woman. And mm-hmm. so this is and, and try to try to find the hole in my logic here because I'm like, I don't care. I want women to have the same rights. I want them to be fine. But what I get stressed out about is I think because I'm either lazy minded or idealistic is that when people are constantly talking about it, I'm like, ah, shouldn't it, no, let's just simplify this. Let's just make everybody equal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, It yeah. should just be so much easier. It seems like it's so complicated and
2: well, it's even more complicated than you might think. Yeah. Um, one of the pieces I've been talking about a lot since I've been, um, on the road in my, um, my witch doctor medicine cart. <laughs> um, I uh, I read um, well two things. One, um, there was a great piece in Harper's by Susan Faludi that I think it was a year ago, last October. I'm going to say generally, so that would be 2010 October. And it was called, it had a title that was had Medea in it, and then I think it, the subtitle was American Feminism's Ritual Matricide. And so the things that I've been reading about feminism that interest me are actually about the feminist movement, um, and its perpetual failure to really get any traction in a sense that it's caught in this cycle where each subsequent generation in order to progress the movement has to disdain, destroy, mock or kill the, um, the generation that preceded it. And this is what Faludi's piece is about. And it sort of tracks how it just becomes like this, um, you know, it's either a cycle or it's just this, uh, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, so it doesn't, you don't make any forward motion really. Um, and this also, and you agree with that, uh, you know, I, I, think I do agree with that. I mean, also because when I read that I, I actually had to feel super guilty because I felt that I had, I hadn't necessarily participated in that, but I could understand that impulse. I remember when I got out of college, and I mean, I think I am on the record as saying this somewhere. Um, when I wrote my first novel, I, I. I felt that I was a little bit writing it in reaction to a lot of that stuff that I read as a women's studies major, that, yeah, that watery, women-y stuff, right? And
1: what was your response to that as a student? Like, were you, it sounds like you were... I loved
2: it. Are you kidding me? I was, like, all in. I was all in. Were you? I was all in, yeah. It was fascinating. (laughs) I mean, and and to be honest, the, uh, I mean, I, 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 is it good or is it bad that I took this class and it clearly, I can't shake it. the, The first women's studies class I took, was called mothers and daughters. Right. And I don't know. That's yeah. just, I can't seem to get out of that class. I'm still, <laughs> still writing term papers for that class and calling them novels.
1: So, so what is going on with me? Cause like this applies to race issues. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and this is a question I have, cause like I'm, I, I'm live and let live. I, don't, mm-hmm. I, don't, I want everyone to be okay. And just everyone to be okay. Whatever you want to do is fine with me as long as yeah. you're not hurting somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And like,
2: you're a nice man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm so bad at articulating this. Do you feel oppressed
2: as a woman? Yes. Personally, no. I mean, I don't personally see in my life a lot of examples of being repressed as a woman, right? Um, or oppressed. Oh, oh, sorry. Oppressed? No, I'm totally repressed (laughs) and I am pretty oppressed in my own household. But once I leave the apartment, it's like an oppression free existence that I live. Um, no, I think that, um, but again, you know, it's, it's, uh, you don't see anything, right? You don't see anything, but when you, um, and I'll be honest, I have tuned out this, the whole, um, political theater that we're, um, audience to right now, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do it.
1: I'm a little, I I I watch a lot of news, but like, I don't, I don't get, I, I don't get emotionally involved the way that I used to. Yeah.
2: See, I do. And so I have to, I just have to say no right now. But, um, but I still feel, um, I felt it was so telling and so damning and so upsetting actually um, which is partially why I've tuned out, um, for the last four years, uh, is when Hillary Clinton was running and I just thought the way she was treated, the way she was talked about it, it was, it was actually the equivalent weirdly of, um, uh, There's a feminist, or queer theory, I think is what she is, gender and queer theory. I don't know what the appropriate terms are these days. They change, you know, every five years. Um, Her name is Jack Halberstam, and she actually teaches at USC. She's pretty fascinating. I saw her at at a... conference that was called What is Feminism Now that was held at Columbia, in fact, by my former mentor who taught me mothers and daughters just to keep it all (laughs) connected. And um, she was talking about, um, it doesn't really matter, she was talking about Yoko Ono's cut piece from, I think it was sixty. Eight, and essentially, Yoko Ono was wearing a dress. You can actually, I think you can see it on YouTube. Um, she's wearing a dress. She's just sitting in a gallery, and there's scissors on the floor. And um, the piece is essentially people walking into the gallery, taking the scissors, and cutting off a piece of her dress, right? Right. But the longer she sits there and the more that people come in, suddenly there's this like crowd vibe that kind of takes over and people approach her with more and more and more aggression. And she's just been sitting there. She's done nothing. She hasn't changed her behavior at all. Right. And it's like, she's kind of drawing out the toxin in a way, you know, um, these people are starting to unconsciously express what they really feel. Um, and, I felt that the Hillary Clinton campaign was, it was like, and it didn't draw out the toxin like it didn't cure people. I felt like it exposed the toxin. I just thought. Ugly. Yeah. And also you just, and then you start to think about your own place in the world and, you know, you think everything is fine and no one's treating you any differently, but you look at an incident like that and you just think, okay, well, that's because whatever place I'm in in the world, I'm not threatening anybody. And you just start to think, okay, you step out of line and. You're, you know, a power grubbing bitch or whatever.
1: Yeah. So she gets a lot of that. She
2: gets a lot of that.
1: Actually, uh, I have an interest. I mean, just like a very small, but fun, uh, Hillary Clinton anecdote. I was at the democratic convention Wow. and I was, uh, covering it and I had like a press pass and I was walking down to you the You had
2: floor. an O press pass? An o
1: press pass. <laughs> I was down there, uh, hanging with the, uh, the feminist delegation and, um, no, but I was walking down to the floor. Right when she went onto the floor to, I forget what the political terminology is, but you,
2: she took the soapbox. I don't know. She
1: conceded the nomination by affirmation. She went down there and you know she made her thing with the New York delegation. Right. But she did that while I was walking down. I was racing down to see it, but then she came off the floor just as I was, you know, we like, we're about to cross paths and then the secret service stepped in front of me and she walked like two feet from me right, right after she had done that. And like, wow. I don't know. Just, I felt like there was like a little moment of history.
2: Yeah. That's amazing, actually. Yeah.
1: And her like, I, think, I want to say it was like a turquoise pantsuit. It was either turquoise or orange.
2: Isn't it supposed to be red? I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was,
1: it was a turquoise on
2: the bottom, orange <laughs> on the top. I don't know. Right? The wore, Howard Johnson's look?
1: She. Wore, I want to say, uh, this is my memory and you can check it on okay, YouTube. but well, I that's think That's true. I think she wore uh, orange. I actually
2: don't care. I just want to know what you think you
1: saw. (laughs) I think I saw orange when she made her speech. Mm. And I think it was turquoise when she went down. It was like a mood ring. It was a mood suit. Yeah. Who knows? Right? But yeah. She She was feeling
2: good. And then she was
1: feeling kind of And she got stuck in the elevator right after that happened. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awful. At the Pepsi Center.
2: That's that. See? That's because she was a woman.
1: <laughs> There's a man somewhere pulling that lever, powered it down. So, okay. So the other thing I want to ask you about, and I, you know, I still, we can't get to the bottom of it in a podcast, but like, mm-hmm. I just find it interesting and I, I don't know what it says about me. I think maybe what it says about me is that it just makes me sad and I don't want to confront it. That the, but that, now's that, the time. That now's the time right now yeah. <laughs> on this beautiful sunny yeah, day. Yeah, let's know? do it now. Oh, and, and I feel the same way. When I hear about uh, racial stuff or um, uh, sexual orientation, I'm just like, who gives a shit? Yeah. I'm like I, To me, it's like, let's just solve this. And I, I feel like that's maybe me just not wanting to do the hard work that's necessary to actually affect real change or something. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is, th- that is, I guess, why um, that Susan Faludi piece interested me so much. Because and it wasn't finger pointing. It wasn't like, you women, how do you expect other people? How do you uh, expect to um affect any change if you can't even work it out amongst yourselves you know yeah but it made me think as all you know it did make me think and how do you affect change and you know you have a daughter i have a daughter we both have the same daughter yeah. <laughs> let's <laughs> let here see this is where we're at, really getting to the bottom of things um You know, I remember actually, I remember when I found out that I was pregnant with a girl and I know she was like 17 weeks in utero and I started freaking out in advance about what her life was going to be like, you know, and I just was like, oh my God, I hope she's cute because if she's not,
1: her life is going to
2: be so much harder. I hope that she, you know, I've had the same thought. is proud of her body. Otherwise she's going to have a f- terrible eating disorder, whatever, you know, how can I make her and how am I going to sidestep all this crazy shit that comes at you yeah. from the time you're like, I mean, seriously, I think she first asked me if she was fat when she was like three years old, oh, you know, no. and I promise you, I am so conscious of that kind of thing that, you know, I'm always just like everyone is a different vibe, blah, 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 whatever. She wasn't fat. I mean, well, she was three, right? She yeah. was she was three. She was three. I don't know. It's crazy to See, me. My daughter's only and like. Anyway, so I freaked out. I really, I was freaking out at 17 weeks. You know, it's it just you know, and then when I found out I was having a boy, I was like, oh, whatever.
1: I'm maybe fine. that's why I don't want to deal with it because I have a daughter.
2: I think it makes it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a. I don't want to say it's a rockier road. I just think being a woman, having been one, I'm not one anymore.
1: Um, but <laughs> in the once past, been
2: having once <laughs> been, um, you know, I'm not, it's certainly, I mean, whatever. To say it's harder is baloney. I'm sure it was really hard to be you too, you know? And and actually, it's that's why, well, that's why I actually was so interested in that. Um, have you ever read the Bridge books, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge by no. Evan S. Connell? They're so Fantastic, and one is till obviously one's Mrs. Bridge and one's Mr. Bridge. They're actually called Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge. And the Mrs. Bridge book is yeah, she's a sad housewife, not so fulfilled. Um, I think it's the 40s or 50s in I think St. Louis. Again, that's what I remember. That's all that matters. Orange pantsuit, but um, <laughs> and and yet weirdly, the book that I found more that of the pair that I found more fascinating was the Mr. Bridge book because um, you know it's 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 about how this man's identity has also been kind of crushed into a box because of the gender expectations he was struggling against his whole life you know so I think to say that girls have it worse than boys or whatever um, everyone's going to have their their shit to deal with but I um, yeah I don't know I just feel like if my son doesn't matter what he looks like like he fell and got a huge Cut, you know, has a scar on his forehead. Who cares, right? You know?
1: Dad's character.
2: Yeah, Makes you know? And uh, yeah. and I'm just like, you know, as long as he's funny, he's fine, right? He can be fat and mean and bald <laughs> like Ben, his dad. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't matter, right? And if you're a girl, you just don't have that kind of latitude,
1: I don't think. Yeah, no, it's, a tough, it's tough that way. I mean,
2: I say that as a mother, not as a... Yeah, I just worry about my daughter
1: i do i do the same thing and but then i feel bad because i'm like why am i so focused on like well right and then you worry that if
2: i think you know whatever if if this is how you feel she's gonna pick up on it blah 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 right Right.
1: so how do you guard against that um just don't talk to them
2: i just you know it's just you uh, you just have to um well, first of all, I make sure never, never, never to talk about like, oh, I'm fat. I feel fat. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I actually just eat like pints and pints and pints of ice cream and <laughs> pepper, pepper. And I'm just like, and I'm not going to throw this up later. Uh-uh. I'm just going
0: to, I'm going to, I'm going to, own this. these calories.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So then on a related track, um, relationships with women mm. and how, uh, emotional, they can be and complex yeah. and sometimes vicious in ways that maybe male relationships aren't. And also there's also They're a
2: differently vicious,
1: differently vicious. And also a me- I should, you know, to kind of counterbalance it, a, a measure of depth that I think is sometimes or is often lacking in male relationships, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially, I don't know, I think that guys sometimes have a hard time, uh, connecting at a level that women seem to access more easily, but along with that access comes, Uh, Yeah.
2: You're more vulnerable. You're
1: more vulnerable. And then the the fights can seem to be more subterranean
2: uh, and coded. Well, yeah. I mean,
1: the wounds go deeper. It's like the whole thing just seems like explain that to me. Yeah.
2: Well, again, I mean, I think, you know, I think that the the kinds of um, aggression that men exhibit toward each other tends to be like physical and it's about like physical power, you know, and. This obviously changes as you get older, but again, I'm just gonna use my kids as an example, right? My son has some issue with some other boy, and they like whack each other over the head with um, their scooters, and then it's all good and they move on, right? And my daughter, again, from I swear, she was three, right? The psychodrama started with the mean girl in the class who was, you know, just, I mean, crippling her. She just would come home and obsess and cry about this girl who would, um, who could manipulate her. And so she did. Right. Oof. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it uh, you know, I should, again, from my own, uh, I have very, very close women friends and lots of them and um
1: Do you have more men friends than women friends? Were you one of those girls who hung I can at- go
2: both ways. Okay. I can. Yeah. Ben used to make jokes about my other husbands, but um but it's most I, I have uh I mean I really rely on my female friends and we go away for weekends together and okay. just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going away tomorrow. Cause to I'm a mud I'm, bath.
1: Right? I'm not, I'm, you know? not a, I'm not like an alpha guy. Like I, like there are guys who like really like if there's a party, I've always noticed this about myself. If there's a party, like all the guys are in a room, like watching football and then there's, like, some girls talking. Like, I will often, not always, yeah, but often be talking with the girls.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know what that means. You know, what I does that mean? I don't know what that
2: means
1: either. <laughs> I'm troubled.
2: I don't know. Because
1: I love football. I like, I love, you know. Right. Oh, just you feel, do? It's yeah. just the
2: whole guy. It's
1: just the, it, I, I like the conversation better yeah. often.
2: It's so funny. I was um, out the other night uh, with this writer, Frederick Tutton. Right? That's and a good name. It is. And he is a character. He's such a character. And he's, I don't know, maybe in his 70s? I don't know. Big flirt, right? Really fun to hang out with him. He's just like, he and he loves women, right? Yeah, yeah. And he actually said, so we were at one end of the table. It was um, him and myself and another woman. And then at the other end of the table were all the guys. And he, at one point, just looked down at the other guys, and he just was like, you know... If I had to go out to an all-male dinner, I think I would want to shoot myself in the head. you know he was like, I just don't want to hang out with guys. Why would I want to do that? I would rather talk with women you know I'm sort um, of that way so uh maybe that just means you're like uber manly right? I don't
1: know well no I think I, I I've thought about this and like I grew up with sisters
2: oh well, then that makes my a lot of sense my mom has
1: my mom comes from a family of seven women or seven females wow. and two boys, yeah. There's a lot of estrogen in my yeah, blood. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah,
2: that could be what it and is. I have a daughter. And you have a daughter, yeah.
1: And wow. I'm happy, and I, I'm glad. I, like, right. I, you know and you
2: just dated that daughter. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually birthed
1: her. <laughs> um, but no, you know, it's like I I feel totally comfortable. And yeah. I think maybe, you know, I, if, it, if it was a son, that would be fine, too. I mean, healthy mm-hmm. baby, healthy baby. But, right. Um, I'm totally comfortable with a daughter.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I uh I am interested in female relationships, I think because of their coded nature, you know, that just becomes more interesting to me to write about. And in a strange way too, um, there's some great quote from some great writer. I think it was Fitzgerald, that great writer. Yeah. And I can't remember the quote, but it's something to do with like, your characters should never say what they mean, you know? And and with women characters, that's just sort of that's the that's the way we communicate, you know, (laughs) and it's and it's not because we are scared to say what we really mean. Um, In a lot of a lot of cases, I actually just don't have to say very much at all. And they know what I'm talking about. There's almost like this psychic connection, you know, Um, and uh, but but there is just a lot of communication that isn't necessarily verbal,
1: I find with with females, yeah, that men don't necessarily have.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for you guys, but I don't have it with men. We
1: we have grunts and exactly, <laughs> exactly,
2: um, and so that that as a as a writer, that just feels um, so much more um, slippery, I guess, and trying to communicate those relationships or really capture those relationships. In words, when words aren't normally used to communicate or not the only things used to communicate, then that just becomes this kind of interesting extra challenge that I sure. enjoy.
1: Sure. Um, so psychic. Mm, I, I, am I was just One. Reading. <laughs> I can see the future. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but I was reading the, an interview that you, you did. You will
2: become a feminist.
1: <laughs> I will. I probably am. I just don't know how to express it.
2: Yeah. You'll uh, become a well-read feminist.
1: That's what I need to yeah, do. I yeah, need yeah, to actually yeah. read something, but... Uh No, you were talking about walking under street lamps mm. and they go off. Yeah, they this, do. This in happens my, in to my me. my life. Me too. It happens
2: to you too? Constantly. <gasps> See, I don't and know. And I'm not
1: even, I'm, you know, that's not an exaggeration. No,
2: no, no. Me too. All me too. Me too. All
1: the time. Me too. To the point where I'm like, what the, you know, I know, what is going on? I know.
2: I know. Well, I don't have an explanation for you and I don't necessarily think it's a psychic thing, but my suspicion.
1: I always worry it's something bad. <laughs>
2: I think it just says something bad about you, <laughs> um, but I my suspicion about myself, and um, maybe my suspicions about you are growing, uh, is that I just have some kind of wacky um, energy that I am emitting. Yeah. And it shorts things out because I have a very bad track record with all kinds of electric, um, electronic. Um, Electronics.
1: What do you mean? Computers. Things breaking? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Things getting fried in my presence. In your, okay. Yeah. So I'm starting I trying to
1: get protective of my, gear I, I,
2: yeah, you should. Well, the two of us here are probably, <laughs> yeah, probably. really
0: surprised the room. That's why it. you
2: need one of the most, um, uh, when I was researching, which I didn't really do that much research for this book since I am psychic and I could just go to the well, right. <laughs> the personal well, that's right. um, for all the information I needed. Um, I was, yeah, researching sort of electromagnetic waves. A lot of People feel that psychics are essentially reading electromagnetic imprints that people leave um even when they're after they're dead right um and and essentially they're that a person who has psychic powers is just kind of like a harnesser or, or a conductor of this energy um and one of the things they used when people were trying to test psychics like where is the power coming from where is this knowledge coming from uh, there's something called a faraday cage which was invented in the late 1800s and it's essentially like a copper cubicle that prevents any kind of electromagnetic, um, waves from permeating. And, uh, so back then they were using it to store equipment that they didn't want to be struck by lightning, for example. Right. But they used it to test psychics to see if they put them in this Faraday cage. Could they still, if someone was outside trying to telepathically communicate with them, could they still receive the message? Right. So anyways, my point is that you need a Faraday cage for your equipment here, especially if you're living in this house.
1: (laughs) Um, so wait, when they were in, but maybe I, I. Yeah, so when they were in, they couldn't. Or the they,
2: idea is that if they could, it, it was they were trying to figure out: is this communication electromagnetic
1: wave right, based? Right. And so, well, but what was the result?
2: I can't remember oh, actually. You can't. Okay, I think that some of them could and some of them couldn't.
1: Okay, you know. Well, so uh, and then with regard to you know research. Uh, for this book, and wasn't it a book from the 1930s that you stumbled yeah, into? Yeah. I forget the name yeah, of it.
2: It's called Psychic Self Defense.
1: Psychic Self Defense. Okay, so how did you stumble into that?
2: Yeah, I was. Um, I think I was googling uh, Madame Helena Blavatsky because I thought that my I thought this novel was going to be about um, a bunch of. Theosophists in a sort of theosophy cult, and she's the goddess of theosophy. Um, what,
1: what is theosophy? Well,
2: this is the problem. This is why I gave up on this novel idea. <laughs> I read. Well, she wrote. And she wrote a book about theosophy called *The Secret Doctrine*, and I, I just have no. I have no idea. I have no idea what she was talking about. I tried to read this thing, and finally, I just decided I was too dumb to figure out what theosophy was. And I was. I was Googling her and some other stuff. Maybe I was trying to find like a, a nice concise definition of theosophy somewhere. So I didn't have to read this 5,000 page book that didn't make any sense to me. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I started clicking away various links and somehow I ended up at Dion fortune.
1: And so well, that's interesting though, because that means your book was essentially born by way of search engine. Totally was. And I that's I think, exactly
2: what it, it was.
1: No. And that happens for me uh creatively all the time and I don't think it gets talked about. No,
2: I I have been actually on my book tour like the pro internet writer. I really I, I I um and I remember back when bookstores were first becoming endangered and and how we all, myself included, were bemoaning the loss of the random discovery, right? And
1: Oh I think the internet is the it's well, a gold mine.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I I feel like the random discoveries that I've made. Yeah. I mean, I found my book topic. I mean, I found the whole springboard for this book.
1: And, 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 and how much that. I mean, no offense to libraries yeah. at all, but like how much more convenient than to have to go like stumbling through like the card catalog. I mean, Yeah. It's a little quicker. I mean,
2: going through the stacks, you know, whatever. It's a different it's a different kind. You're just it, it's all about accidental discovery, right? You're right. just putting yourself in the way of a happy accident. It's, it's. Uh, I guess my feeling about the internet is that it didn't destroy that possibility. And I think that when bookstores were starting to close down, that was the that was the fear. I think that that you would just go to Amazon and buy a book, and it wouldn't be surrounded on the bookshelf by all these other random books that you would never discover, right? Right. Um, so yeah, happy accidents, happy discoveries can still occur.
1: So with regard to, uh, you know, there's the research part of it, but then the writing part of it, you publish four novels now four. so, and that's in a span of about 10 years.
2: I think the first one came out in 2000. 2000. Yeah. So it's 12 12 years. Yeah.
1: But that's pretty disciplined. That's
2: not bad. How do
1: you work? Like, are you really Um, like, I'm pretty
2: disciplined, you know, I mean, I think maybe I'm too disciplined and I'm, I am, uh, experimenting with a form of laziness or maybe not laziness, but essentially I get totally anxious if I'm not always working on a novel. That's why, because then who am I? I am, I am no one, you know, and what do you do? You go to the lot, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of other things, editing, teaching nonfiction, whatever, but even so it all feels like it needs to fit inside of the frame of I'm writing a novel, you know? Um, that, that has to compress all of those other activities in some way. And and when that's not happening, it just all feels really random, yeah. you know? And so my approach to not having a random feel to my life is I will, f- I have in the past finished a book and instantly started another one. And that I think is the reason that for all of the four books that I have published, I wrote essentially 275 pages of another novel that was sort of like a prequel to this novel that eventually was published, and I had to throw it away.
1: Well, see, but that's not four
2: a- times I did that, and it was related. I mean, it wasn't an un- it wasn't like oh, I'm now I was writing about like. Sheep in New Zealand, and then I decided to write about psychics. Right? I mean, the, it was I went from sort of theosophy, reincarnation, whatever, and then I shifted over, and and, and the theme was the same, right? Mm. It was a sort of impersonator filling um a hole in someone's life who had lost a loved one, right? But I I just had to rejigger it completely. The execution was totally wrong, and so my hopeful solution this time around is I just was like, don't. And in fact, this book was so much harder for me to write. It just totally took it out of me. And, um, so when I finished, I just was, I was so not ready to start writing another novel. In fact, I think I told a couple of people that I was never writing a novel ever again. Like this novel just totally killed me, you know? Um, and, but I'm ready now, you know? Um, but by the time I start writing this new one, I won't have written a novel for a year. Which is, I've never done that before, you know? So I'm hoping this time I don't have to write. I hope the novel I start writing is not the novel I throw away, you
1: know? Maybe yeah. not. You never know. But I, I mean, know. maybe that's just, I mean, I... I, I
2: but I, you can't accept that as your process and just be like, okay, now I'm starting the novel I'm throwing away. Just 275 more pages to go, then I can throw it away, right? right? No, one right. Can, no, no one can work
1: that way. Well, no, but I read uh, Philip Roth, uh, an interview with Philip Roth, and he was, I mean, but I think he's the same, He's an everyday, 8 hour day mm-hmm. writer, And he's like, yeah, I usually write, uh, I'll finish a book, the next day I'll start, I'll write about 500 pages, there'll probably be two or three that are worth anything, and then I take those and start the book. Wow. You know, Or something like that. And he's like, the best. Or, you know, that's just how it goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I remember, I think it was Zadie Smith who said she spends a year or more just working on the first paragraph.
0: Oh, God. Okay, but but that's then, like, it's but heartening,
2: then but. she, she figures it out and then she just writes the book really fast, you know, that it's something about like, that's her way of working her way in yeah. to what the book is going to be about. That's like know?
1: depressing and heartening at the same time.
2: I mean, is it more depressing to work on the same paragraph? every day or is it more depressing to write 500 pages and two of them are good? I don't know. Those are both pretty depressing scenarios, but
1: but it's heartening to think that people that are that good have to do that. Yeah, that's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just the way it is.
2: No, it is. It really is. It is. It is. You know, I find myself in this position as a professor, um, talking to students especially now it seems like a really scary it's a scary time to certainly to be a writer starting out you know i I, it was
0: never easy but it was never easy
2: but now it seems i don't know whatever i hate to be that way i'm sure there's either more opportunities than there ever were it's just changing it's just different and i don't think we quite know yet how the sustainability of this new model is going to shake out You know, can you make a living from it or can you not? And et cetera. Um, And so I I constantly have these, you know, understandably kind of concerned about their future students asking me like, well, do you think, like, do you think I can do this? Right. Am I a good enough writer? And I just say, you know, the people who get published aren't the good writers, you know? Uh, I mean, I remember from grad school, the most talented writers in our class, they just, they just didn't have the... I don't know. I don't even want to say passion. They didn't have the sense of self-hatred to just do this to themselves every day. Right.
1: It is a brutal process.
2: And, and so I say to them, I was like, look, if you, if you do it and you do it every day, you'll probably get published, but you, you have to do it, you know, and that might just not be what, how you want to spend your time.
1: Yeah. That's a good way of putting it.
2: I don't know. Right. So
0: how do you deal
1: with the bad days? Like, do you, I mean, every writer goes through like crippling self-doubt and frustration and like you are reading about theosophy. Is Mm -hmm. that how you pronounce it? Yeah. And you go through what, months of doing that and research and you think you're on this track and then you write 275 pages. And then the day you realize that 275 pages aren't going to work.
2: That's when you uh, party. Yeah. But (laughs) you're just like, (laughs) woohoo. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Seriously,
2: it's like getting out of a bad relationship. That you're like, I knew for a long time this wasn't gonna work. Okay, that was right. The, but I can't, call, I can't break up with him.
1: Okay, that's just what I was gonna say. Right. Is that that actually on the outside you think that must be the worst day? But in some ways it no, might. It's the best day. It's of the, the best life. day because you realize you're free of it, yeah. and then you have also, I think, coupled with that is some sort of epiphany about how better to
0: move forward.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will be honest. The, the first time I had to throw a book away, you know, it was crippling and horrible and depressing, and right. And the second, a little. less. And the third a little less, and I'm telling you that I I'm not joking. That last the book I threw away before I wrote The Vanishers, it was the right before the Fourth of July weekend and I was just like, Yeah, okay. Anyways, cocktail time <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, well, that's a good attitude about it, though.
2: Yeah, you know, at I some guess. Point. I
1: mean, what else? You can't sit around and like weep about it. I guess. You not. Gotta press on.
2: I guess you do. I guess you do. Um, but yeah, I, I I will say that I'm now so conscious of where the joy comes in this process, and it's not where you think it is. You know? Where is it? Well, I need It's not now. Like really, this is just a joyless moment for me podcast yeah (laughs) um no i think when i first started writing i you know you're like it's all about the book being published that's when the joy comes right Yeah, yeah and the joy comes right like i don't know you're at you're, it's like the last few months that you're writing it and every day you get up and you know this thing so well and you know everything you're doing to it is not making it worse it's making it better and I in fact I kind of had a moment of silence for myself last May I was in the library and I was at you know I just was cranking along and i had been for a couple months at that point right i just i knew i was in the groove i was i was at the finish line nearly and i just suddenly i just stopped and i was like this is it this is the this is what i worked for this moment right you know yeah and it's all downhill from here
0: <laughs> <It's all> downhill. <laughs> well
1: this has been so much fun talking with it's you it's been really fun talking congratulations to you. on everything thank
2: you thank you and enjoy
1: the rest of your tour and uh i don't know What else do we say? I
2: don't know. Let's go pet your dog.
1: Let's go pet my dog. (laughs) It's nice talking with you.
2: Really nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, folks. There you go. That is the show. That's the program. That's Heidi Julevitz. Uh, Isn't she wonderful? Really fun talking with her. Go get her novel. It's called The Vanishers. It's out from Doubleday. It's getting all kinds of rave reviews. And uh, check out the Believer magazine, too. You can see it online. It's at believermag.com. It's also on your newsstand Uh, Heidi can be found on the Facebook, and I believe she also might have a Twitter presence, at Heidi Julevitz, but if she does indeed uh, have this presence, she has yet to actually tweet. There are zero tweets in the at Heidi Julevitz Twitter account, uh, which is sort of enjoyable in its own way. Uh, Be sure to follow other people on the Twitter, at Other People Pod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. You can subscribe to the podcast uh, over at iTunes. It's free. And please, uh, when you go over there, rate it and give it a nice little review. That does help. And uh, it's also available on Stitcher if you're a Stitcher person, and that is also for free. And if you want to email me, it's letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the great music. Go check out killrockstars.com. And then uh, otherwise, uh, psychic experiences, premonitions, mysteries of the unknown, supernatural powers. I don't know what to make of it all. Uh, I don't know how to sum that up. Maybe these are just uh, lucky guesses that I've been making. Maybe it's just a brief flash of heightened intuition. Uh, Maybe uh, the bulbs on these streetlights are simply burning out and maybe earthquakes really do have an odor and maybe i am able to engage in telepathic communications with certain embryos i don't know uh, i'm just saying that it's strange that's all that i'm saying and i don't know uh, exactly what to think and if you have any ideas uh, i'm all ears otherwise uh, please remember that dostoyevsky wrote the gambler in 16 days and he wrote the eternal husband in dresden and had to borrow money to mail it to his publisher in saint petersburg I will be back again soon with another conversation with another human being that will last approximately one hour and nine minutes. It's going to happen. That is my prediction. Streetlights are going out, people. The building is shaking. Babies are being conceived. I can feel it. It is written in the stars.